Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, we have Michelle Seiler Tucker. She's the author of Exit Rich. Uh, she's just let me know that uh, the audiobook version on Audible is, uh, is out and at a discount for the month of May 2022. Uh, Exit Rich talks about the 6P method to sell your business for huge profit. Michelle is the founder and CEO of uh, Seiler Tucker Incorporated. She's sold hundreds of businesses to date and owns and operates several successful businesses. So if you want to hear from an authority on buying, selling, and improving your business to get max value, I think she's it. So, Michelle, thanks for coming back. Thank you. Thanks, Richard, for having me back on. Yeah, for people that haven't listened before or need a refresher, can you briefly spell out either the six Ps or an abbreviated version? You know, what makes a business worth more than another business that seems equivalent, let's say, on the surface? Sure. So Exit Rich is endorsed by Steve Forbes. And Steve Forbes says 80% of businesses on the market will never sell. 80%. So that means you have less than a 20% chance of success, <laughs> which is pretty scary, right? Less than a 20% yes. chance of success. And there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, one of the biggest reasons is what I call the valuation gap. And that's because business owners really don't think about their exit. They don't plan to sell their business until they wake up one day and realize that something's happened. Either they're going through a partner's dispute, divorce, death, this pandemic that we've been going through all over the world for the last two and a half years. And the worst time to sell your business is really during a catastrophe because your numbers are typically going down, trending downward, and the business is not going to be worth as much. So if you want to maximize value, you really need to plan your exit from the beginning and you really need to build a business that buyers want to buy. The reason that so many businesses don't sell and don't sell for what the buyer, what the seller wants to sell for is because what happens, Richard, is typically sellers will call me up and say, hey, I want $15 million for my business. And their EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, is worth $100,000. So there's a huge, there's a huge valuation gap. And the reason why sellers come up with these numbers is it's not based upon the value of their business. It's based upon what they need to enter the next phase of their life, whether that's retirement, whether that's, you know, starting or buying a new company, relocating, whatever that is, they base it on what they need. Buyers don't care what you need. Buyers care what the value is and what the value brings them. So there's always this huge valuation gap. So when if businesses are selling, they're typically selling for pennies on the dollar. They're not maximizing value. And well, quick question. Um, is there a typical for different industries? Like, you know, I don't know, the clothing industry is three to five times net and the uh, energy industry is two to five times net. Is there any typical or can you not rely I mean, on that? There are typicals, but there are things that, that can drive value and you can get a much higher multiple than what's typical. So a clothing store, three to five or two to five, you're, you're, in most cases, we'll never get five. 
times net income. And it's really based upon the EBITDA. So businesses that are under a million dollars in EBITDA, which most clothing stores are, are way under that. They will typically, businesses will typically trade for anywhere from one, one and a half to three, maybe three and a half multiple if their if they're EBITDA is under a million. If your EBITDA is over a million, the businesses will typically start trading higher. They start at four, four and a half and go up. And what makes a business more valuable to a buyer are those synergies, are those synergies, those proprietary assets, things that can help drive the current company to the next level. What are some basic things that the businesses can have? What about like, you know, policies, procedures, checklist systems? Does that add much value? It does. So now we're getting into the six P's. So one of the biggest reasons that businesses aren't sellable is because entrepreneurs have created themselves a job that they go to work at every day versus a business that actually works for them. And a business is dependent upon the owner. So people is the first P. You really, you really got to make sure the business that you're working on the business, not in it. You got to make sure the business doesn't depend upon you. I'll give you two quick examples. I had a lady that called me from Texas. I know you're in Austin, Texas. She's in Dallas, Texas. Husband dropped out of a heart attack at the age of 40. Left her with a mountain of debt. She didn't know anything about the finances or about the business. Asked me if I could sell it. Started asking some questions. He has a construction company. He has no employees. He has subcontractors. Processes is what you just mentioned, Richard. And he had no processes. He had no policies. He had no nothing. All the data was in his head. When he died, the business died. Another example, I got a dentist. One dentist been in business in practice for over 50 years. One dentist, same dentist that started the company, three dental hygienists. Three dental hygienists are his daughters. <laughs> and so when he leaves, the patients leave. I already told him, yes, we can sell the business, but we can't maximize it. And there's going to be contingencies in there to mitigate the buyer's risk, which means you and your daughters will have to stay over two to three years. And he said, well, honey, we're not staying. I said, well, then honey, you're not selling. So you really got to look at your business, especially service businesses. You got to look at your business and, and you know, ask yourself, can this company run without me? Can I take off for three, four, five, six months? And a business doesn't miss a beat. That's what you got to get to. Most businesses, most business owners are working in their business. They have a finger in every pie. And you really, you really got to separate that. You got to focus on your strengths, hire your weaknesses, make sure you get the right people in the right seats, and ask the who question. You know, who handles customer service, marketing, legal, manufacturing, distribution, logistics? The list goes on and on. But you want to make sure that you have a who in every seat, so you're working on the company, not in it. If you're working on the company, in all likelihood, you're not going to maximize value, and you will have to stay on for a few years. And larger businesses will have to sell a small, have to sell a percentage and still retain equity in which to give the buyer peace of mind. How do you know if um, your business is at the maximum possible automation point? Are you like, what's that look like? Is the person just speaking with their CEO once a month and going over numbers? Or is it okay if the person still spends, you know, like an hour or two a week talking to key personnel? Is that systematized enough? Yeah, and that, that's sometimes enough for sure. We have an electrical company that we're selling in the 40 to 59 range. And he has three divisions, two facilities, $7 million in EBITDA. And he works about eight to 10 hours a week. That's pretty systematized. However, buyers are still weary and buyers are wanting to, you know, we've, we've gotten several LOIs all for buying 80% of the business. Because I want to sell 80%, he wants to sell 100%. The one thing that he hasn't done that he needs to do a better job at is really identifying who will be those leaders, 
who will take over when he's not there, who, you know, who can carry on. And that's something that's really, really important going forward. Even if you're only working a few hours in the business, you want to make sure you always have a next in line. Who can take over for you? Who can, you know, be that visionary and, and do what you do? Because the one thing that's, that's so scary to buyers is coming into a company where they feel like that owner, even though they only work a few days, a few hours a week, that owner still is, is visible in that business and that owner is still, you know, in charge of the vision. Does that make sense? You know, as a, I own my own company as well. It seems like, I don't know if, can you get it in one person? Um, and I'm not saying this to brag or anything, but I'm just, you know, really passionate and interested in my business. So I have that passion. I have that interest. I also have to lead it. Is it possible to get that in one person that's your replacement or do you have to have, do you have to break up your role into a couple of different roles in order for yes. it to continue? So that depends. I mean, that's a good question, but it's going to depend on this particular example of the electrical company. It's three different people because he has an electrical, he has an industrial division. He has an electrical division and he has an engineering division. So he's got a key person in, in industrial and electrical. Those two, two people can take over their divisions and then he has a CFO. So you're looking at three people to really take over for one person who's working 10 hours a week. So it really depends upon what your roles are, you know, what you do in the business, who's the closest person. I mean, there's just so many different factors. That's a hard question to answer without knowing the business in its entirety. But like the personality of someone that, let's say, wants to run the business as a manager versus the personality of someone that wants to grow it. Can those two reside in the same person if it's not the original entrepreneur that started it? Like, do, do people need at least two, you know, maybe a business development key person and then also a, you know, a CEO to run it and manage it and keep it going? So I always say that, that most operation people are not visionaries. So you have your entrepreneurial who's a visionary and then you have the integrator who's usually the ops manager, right? And so. It's two different, it's two different positions, it's two different skill sets, two different brain sets, you know, brain mentality, et cetera. So that's very again, it's a difficult question to answer without really knowing the team. The buyer who comes in to buy your business, that person could be the visionary, depending upon what they've done in the past with their companies. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. So what, what are some of the next P's in your formula? So then we have products. So going back to people, like I always say, you don't build a business, you build people and people build the business. And then you go into product. So product is your industry, your product, your service. You really have to, to look at your industry and ask yourself, is it on the way up? Do you have an Amazon or, or is your industry on the way out? Do you have a blockbuster? Because our industries are becoming obsolete. So you really need to look at that. I mean, if you look at the restaurant industry, 
you know, they're struggling and they've been struggling for the last two and a half years and they're going to continue to struggle for a while. So you have to look at your industry and, you know, always say, ask yourself three questions because just because you've been in a business for a certain period of time doesn't mean that you shouldn't innovate. One of the biggest mistakes for business owners is they become complacent. They stop doing what I call aim, which is always innovate and always market. It used to be that startups were at great risk in our nation of going out of business. Now it's, it's businesses that have been in business over 10 years. So startups used to be 90%. Now only 30% of startups are going out. But if you look at businesses that have been in business for 10 years or longer, 70% of them will go out of business. And that's out of 27.6 million companies. And the main reason for that is, like I said, lack of innovation, lack of marketing. You know, you hear about the big box stories like Toys R Us. Toys R Us has been in business 75 years, goes out of business. Well, Toys R Us also never really innovated. And there's a bunch more stories like that, like Blockbuster. So I always say, ask yourself three questions. Ask yourself, what business are you in? Amazon did that back in the 80s. They asked themselves what business they're in, and they said, we're in the, we're in the book fulfillment business. Next question is, what's your superpowers? What do you do better than everybody else? And Amazon said fulfillment. We fulfill products and better than anyone else. Third question is, what business should we be at? And Amazon said, hmm, we should be in the fulfillment business, fulfilling products all over the world. And I do this with a graphics company that I own in Texas. We, we install graphics for first responders. So police, police cars, ambulances, fire trucks, Harris County is a big client of ours. And I asked the question, what business are we in? They said, we're in the install business. I said, what's our superpower? They said, our superpower is our art. And we can do a paint by numbers on how to put the graphics on the car. Well, what business should we be in? We should be in the uninstalled market because it's a lot more profitable. We can ship graphics all around the world. We can basically have a paint by number approach on how to put them on the vehicle. And we can cut our labor cost and not have to have as many installers. Okay. And so then, and, and people just want to dismiss that. Kind of like you said, keep going. That's very important because so many businesses, like I said, are in a dying industry. All the businesses have been doing the same thing for years and years and years and years. And then they wonder why they lose market share. You really always have to look at your business. A lot of times it takes a, a different set of eyes to find out why, why is that, you know? So it's really important. I mean, if you look at McDonald's, what, what business is McDonald's in? Well, some say the real estate business, some say in the uh, food delivery systems business. It just depends, I guess. They're really in the real estate business. They're the largest real estate holding company in the world. And if they didn't get into the real estate business, you, you would not have McDonald's all over the world. Did you watch the movie The Founder? Yeah, I watched it a while ago. It was, uh, <laughs> it was very good. Yeah. So so Ray Kroc was about to lose everything. That's why he was in the, in the bank trying to leverage, leverage and borrow more money. And um, he, wanted, he wasn't going to be able to stay in business until a gentleman borrowed him out. I said, what business are you in? He's the one who told him he needs to start buying up the land. Build the buildings, lease it to the franchisees. When the franchisees are not complacent, put another franchisee in. That's what gave them the leverage to take over McDonald's. That's why McDonald's is a large real estate holding company. So it's a very important question to ask and really, you know, ponder uh, on what your business is and what your superpowers are. The next one is processes. I mean, there's a bottom line. You can have the best people, but you, but you don't have the right processes in place that are efficient, productive, designed with the customer experience in mind. And the people are not going to be very efficient and you know, it's, it's going to cost. It's going to cost you more money and productivity. So I always tell clients, most business owners get this wrong. Most business owners go into business and they design their processes 
around their own agenda. Doctors are a perfect example of this. I actually hate going to the doctor's office because their hours are what, Monday through Thursday, nine to four, nine to five. Sometimes they're off at two on one day. And then Fridays are either closed or they're open so then They never really look at what is a client, what is a client experience? My husband and I did this. We have 10 medical locations um, in Louisiana. We're not largest healthcare provider in the state of Louisiana. And we asked ourselves, what are those three things we want clients to experience? And we said, we want them to experience flexible hours so they don't always have to take off from work. We want them to experience no wait time. And what's the other one? We want them to experience a friendly staff. So guess what? We're open three nights a week till 7.30. We're open on Fridays all day. I'm open a half day on Saturday till 2.30. Makes sense. Okay. So it makes a lot of sense, but most business owners don't do that. Business owners need to get out of their own head and they need to go to the clients and survey their clients and ask them, what are the three things you want to experience? McDonald's did that back in the 40s. They said, look, we're going to a fast food delivery system here, and we want to design it around our clients' experience. We want them to experience great tasting food that's hot, fast, 30 seconds or less. we got to get back to the basics. If we don't, you know, every business owners want to cry about losing market share. If you're losing market share, <laughs> it's because you're not catering to your clients. You're not creating a wow experience. And so, so you, um, you, you gave a good example of what you did with your business, but what, yeah. what examples have you seen that really like really impressed you big time about what business owners did to make their business more saleable? Um, as far as processes go? Yeah, as far as any of the six P's, any really cool examples that incorporate one or all of them that you see in a business owner that you really admire? Yeah. So when, when we're selling businesses, we'll make these little tweaks in a business but most of the time we take on a client to sell, the business is pretty much running all six Ps. When it's not, we put them into a program called Road to Exit Rich, where we can make these changes in the people and the products and the processes, things of that nature. Uh, but some cool examples, let's see, I'm thinking. Well, we have an electrical company that we're selling, the one that I mentioned earlier. One, one thing that I think is really unique about them is they have a customer section for some of their really big clients. And sometimes a client comes in and picks out inventory. So they'll have a section for their, their you know, larger clients that want to come in and just say, hey, I need that, I need like, well, I need this, I need this, I need that. They'll have a, a section for that particular client where that client can come in and check thing, things out of their inventory department. I think that's pretty unique. So um, can you say can you say a little bit more about that? Like what what do you mean? What is this done for their customers and uh well, again, yeah, what specifically they, they do? They don't do it for all clients. They do it for the larger clients, but it gives their clients flexibility where they don't have to call, place the order, do this, do that. They could just walk into the warehouse, meet with the warehouse manager, pick the part that they want, that they need, check it out, and walk out that day, and they'll get billed for it later. So it creates flexibility. It helps them. It helps that client be more efficient and solve problems quicker. Because they don't always need an electrician to come in and put something in. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of businesses don't seem to have programs for what would be their best customers. You know, expedited service, a higher level that no one else gets. You know, they can pay more, but I don't see a lot of businesses offering that. Well, Amazon has that. Amazon has Prime Delivery. It's been a mess lately, it seems, with the, with the supply chain. But Amazon has what they offer, Prime Delivery. But you're right. Most most companies charge more for that service, like Walmart's doing it, Target's doing it, um, but they're charging more for it. 
Hmm. Okay, well, continuing on the six P's, what, what are the other ones that are uh, remaining? So we talked about processes, and the biggest thing in processes is when you go to sell your company, one of the biggest things that is going to come up during due diligence is your policy and procedure manuals, your SOP checklist, your employee handbooks, your non compete contracts. And a lot of business owners don't have all of this in place. And it's not just small businesses. We're selling this you know, $55 million agriculture company, and they have a logistics department that doesn't really have probably any policies and procedures. And so you really got to make sure all of that's buttoned up. You got to make sure your employee contracts are buttoned up. You better make sure that your management team has non-competes in place. Because otherwise, it's going to stall your deal. Buyers are not going to buy large type businesses without all of that in place. And you're going to have to go back and, and, and put it together, or they're going to discount the purchase price and do it themselves. And then the next okay. thing, the next piece is proprietary. So we've already mentioned this a little bit when we talked about valuations. Like you, you mentioned, you know, two to three to five net income. First of all, it's now it's really not net income in large businesses. It's net income in small clothing stores, restaurants, coffee shops, ice cream stores. That's net income. Everything else is a multiple of EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, unless it's a SaaS company. SaaS companies are always a multiple of revenues. And so what drives up the multiple is proprietary assets. Number one is branding. The more well-branded you are, the more we can sell your company for as long as your brand is relevant and remind the consumer, meaning nobody's buying Amazon. The largest brand, the most valuable brand, I should say, $289 billion is how much the Apple brand is worth. The company is worth trillions. But just a brand alone is worth $289 billion. So the more well-branded you are, the more name recognition the company has, the more we can sell the business for versus a company that's not branded at all. The other thing are trademarks. It's, it's shocking to me how many companies don't have a federally trademarked name or logo or slogan. And it's, it's a big problem because I've seen customers in business five, 10 years, all of a sudden receive an assist letter and they have to stop using that company name. And the reason for that is because they never took the federal database. They go to GoDaddy and come up with a name. <laughs> they go to their state, they get it registered, but they never check the federal database. So it's very important to go to the federal trademark. It's not that expensive. It's about a little bit under $1,000 or $1,000 for a trademark. Also, your products. Most business owners never think about trademarking their products. We have a client right now that has a federal trademark for six different products. Each product has exclusivity. One product's in Target, one product's in Walmart, one's in TJ Maxx. So this adds value to the business when you have these federal trademarks. Same thing with patents. If you've ever watched Shark Tank, the, the question that every shark asks is, do you have a patent on that? Do you have a patent pending? We sold this one for $18 million. It wasn't making that much money, but they had 18 patents. Same thing with contracts, vendor contracts, manufacturing contracts, distribution contracts, any type of franchisor with franchisees. Client contracts are really valuable, but the biggest mistake that business owners make is they forget the transferability clause, saying this contract is transferable upon the new entity because 98% of sales are asset sales, not stock sales. And so if the contract's not transferable, then you have to go back to your clients and get what's called a consent for transfer. Now your clients know your business is for sale. And what happens if that buyer backs out? Yeah, it could be the kiss of death, yeah. There's a case of that. We have a meeting. Even if, even if the buyer doesn't back out, they may say, oh, I don't want to deal with them. I want to deal with you and quit. 
a thousand times. That's why employees employees have quit, customers quit. That's why it's imperative to keep the sale of your business confidential. We have a media company We've got two thousand clients on reoccurring subscription. Two thousand. He doesn't have transferability contract in any of his contracts. So can you imagine having to go to two thousand clients? Yeah, that would be crazy. I know what would happen. And you know, it happens with franchisors good... all the time. Mature franchisors don't have the transferability that the franchisee's contract is transferable upon a new entity. A couple of questions here. I don't know. Does your average, like what business size really needs branding and trademarks and, you know, federally registered this and that? I mean, you know, if you're a plumber, does it matter? Like what size and scope do you need these things? Well, so if you're a solo plumber by yourself, no. But if you have a plumbing company and you've got 50 plumbers, yeah, that's important. You know, same thing with an electrical company. They have 85 electricians. It's very important because what happens if they receive a letter that says you can't use this company name anymore and they got to start the rebranding process all over again. You know, they'll hire an attorney and they'll go to court, but, you know, they may lose. So it's very important if you're growing. We're talking about building a business here. And if you're going to build a business, you really need to cross your T's, dot your I's, and do all this right from the beginning. If it's a small little restaurant, a small little clothing store or something like that, you know, it might not be as imperative as it is a $55 million agricultural company or $250 distribution company that we're selling. You know what, though? It's funny. Now that I mentioned it to you, Mm -hmm. there are, yeah, I remember back, uh, there's one restaurant here. It was some, like, Mexican, uh, you know, Texas fusion mm-hmm. and they got a letter from a company, I don't know, in like Houston or something, it wouldn't really affect their business, but they demanded that they change their name because they had the name. It was so stupid. Right. And same thing with this other, uh, like, you know, Thai noodle, noodle soup place. I remember years ago, they got a letter from like across the country saying they had to change their name and it didn't even affect them, but they didn't want to fight it. And so they did, but it, it really messed up their business to do that. You know? Exactly. So this happens. You just named two stories. I can name probably a hundred. It happens all the time. And that's what a trademark, that's what a trademark is. It protects your rights. So if you don't have the, if you don't have the federal trademark, at least do this. At at least put the TM, small TM behind your company name, behind your logo, behind your slogan, put the TM. But if, you know, even that restaurant, if, even though they're a small restaurant, they're not growing a multi-million dollar company, it still hurt their business, right? So a thousand dollars would have saved them all of that headache. <laughs> it would have saved them from rebranding. It would have saved them from doing all of that. True. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, it makes sense. There's something that I didn't know because my company is called Seller Tucker Incorporated. And my trademark attorney, I have a new trademark patent attorney, Lisa Michelle. You really need to get Salar Tucker Incorporated trademark. And I go, why? It's my name. And they said, so what? And I go, what do you mean it's so what? It's my name. <laughs> I'll give somebody use my name. He goes, well, you can have Salar Tucker, you can have a Tucker MA firm or a Salar MA firm or a Tucker business consulting firm. And you do business consulting. He says, you need to still protect the Salar Tucker in those categories so nobody else can use it. And I had no idea. I didn't think. I thought, well, gosh, if it's my name, like Richard Jacobs, why would you have to? Why would you have to trademark that, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. So anyway, so so I encourage everybody to spend a thousand dollars, get the federal trademark, because it can cost you. Know, it can save you from heartache. And not only that, 
at least go and check the federal database before you name your company. Because if you see something similar, if you see somebody somebody else that has that same name, don't go, don't use that same name. And it doesn't matter if it's just in the state of Texas, like you just mentioned, there's somebody from another state that said they have to start using it. So mm-hmm. you, gotta, you gotta be very careful about that. Um, make sure you just protect yourself. And like I said, $1,000 to protect your company name, it's worth it. It's yeah, it worth makes it. sense. Any other pieces left that we haven't discussed yet? We do have two more pieces, but I want to finish proprietary really quickly. Databases are huge. Databases can bring you a lot of money, especially if you're a SaaS company, e-commerce company, app company. If I have an app company, it's been on the market two weeks. We already have a, a above asking price offer on this app company. And databases are huge, especially if they can be retargeted. If you look at Facebook, they pay $19 billion for WhatsApp. And WhatsApp was hemorrhaging money, Richard. And but but WhatsApp had a synergy. They had a billion users, and that's what we're talking about here. Are the synergies? So any type of content, celebrity endorsements, um, radio personalities. This all really builds credit, builds value in your business. We have a client that's working with Oprah. Well, guess what? A strategic will pay a lot more money for that business because everybody wants to get their products in front of Oprah, right? So you really have to look at that. And the other thing I want to tell you too is make sure that you take your IP and you own it in a separate corporation. So you don't want to own your patents and everything in your corporation that you're doing business out of because if, uh, if, if you get sued, then you can lose your IP. So one thing to lose your company is another thing to lose your IP. Um, and then the fifth P is patrons. This is your customer base. You know, usually most businesses follow the 80-20 rule where 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your clients. And you want to make sure you don't have customer concentration. You want customer diversification because there's one thing that would decrease value in your company and that's customer concentration. If you have all your business, we have a business from someone right now for $55 million. That's the agricultural company. 70% of their revenue is with one grocery store chain. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, it's dangerous. Hold you at gunpoint for anything or just leave. Well, and then if they leave, what do you lose? you're practically out of business the last fee is profits and the reason i put profits last is because lack of profits is never the problem it's the symptom of it's the symptom of not having the right people in place not being in a dying industry not fighting industry not having your processes buttoned up not you know making sure you protect your proprietary assets lack of profits is never the problem if you're operating all five fees you're going to be profitable it's almost bulletproof what happens if uh all this makes if I have a sophisticated buyer that's familiar with all these things and values them, I can see, yeah, I would get a lot more for my business. But you know, what if I'm approached by a non-sophisticated buyer, you know, someone that wants to buy their first business or they have a bunch of extra money, they want to buy a business and they don't appreciate any of these things. Is it just are these universally appreciated or not necessarily? No, not necessarily. <laughs> so if you read Exit Ridge, I have a section in there on the negotiations. And I go through the five different types of buyers, first-time buyers, 98%, about 90, 95% of buyers are first-time buyers. First-time buyers are not buying multi-million-dollar companies. They typically buy businesses under $1 to $2 million. And what they care about is very different. They don't really look, they're looking at the bottom line. They're not really looking at people or processes or anything else. You got turnaround specialists. They buy businesses that are in distress because they're going to fix them, grow them, sell them for a profit. You got private. So the three types of buyers that really care about the six Ps are going to be your private equity groups. Those are pegs. 
strategic slash competitive buyers and sophisticated entrepreneurs. But you really need an M&A advisor because if a buyer comes to you and says, oh, Richard, I don't care about your IP. But then a buyer says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you look at Richard's IP, if you look at his proprietary software, this proprietary software doesn't only just work for Richard's company. This proprietary software can be licensed to other businesses in this specific industry or even maybe outside this industry. So you, we really, as advisors, look at each one of these synergies to see how they can be utilized outside of what even the business owner is currently utilizing it for and how it can bring value to that buyer. So a merger consultant, I mean, at what size business would, would you suggest someone ask someone to come in and evaluate and what do they do and how much do they cost? And, you know. I am I, are you talking about business book or merchants and acquisitions advisor? Well, when people go to sell, right. Um, yeah. And I'm sure a business broker leaps to mind and they have their own commission and everything. But you mentioned um, mergers and acquisitions or mergers type expert. Who, yeah. What are they like? What do they do? How much do they cost? Et cetera. Yeah. So kind of let me separate the two out for you real quick for your audience. Business brokers sell small businesses, typically under $5 million. These are typically your clothing stores, your pizzerias, your restaurants, your smoothies, ice cream stores, et cetera. And an M&A um, advisors typically sell businesses $10 million and up. Business brokers really, you know, they're not there to advise you. They're not there to help you get your business together. Um, M&A advisors know how to evaluate businesses based upon the synergies. Most of them do, not all. Um, but many of them are also not really advisors. They're, they help you get the deal done. You know, they put the deal on the market. They do the evaluation. They put the deal on the market. They go to market. They try to start a company. I'm a little bit different than most of them. And the reason for that is because I own different businesses in different industries. I've always been an entrepreneur way before I got into this industry. And so I know a lot more about what it takes to run a business. I know a lot more about what it takes to make a business valuable, you know, what buyers are looking for, et cetera. Most M&A, so business brokers typically don't charge a retainer fee, even straight commission. M&A advisors typically will charge a retainer fee anywhere from 40000 to 150000 Some of them charge monthly. Some of them charge quarterly. Uh, I don't charge a retainer fee. I'm probably one of the only advisors. I know this because I'm on a panel for different M&A associations. But I don't charge a retainer fee. I'm going to say yet because <laughs> I want to change that one day. But I've been in this industry over 20 years. I've never charged a retainer fee. So I will look at a business. I'll do the valuation. If, if a client hires me to sell their business, I don't charge for the valuation either. We go to market with the business. If their business needs a lot of work and they're not sellable, then we have a road to exit rich program. And and that pricing depends upon the business and what they need. Do you have uh, a lot of people that say, Michelle, buy my business, please help me? Well, I do do that. You know, So we don't just sell companies. I specialize in buying, selling, fixing, growing. There have been times when I bought businesses. Um, I also partner with businesses. You heard about the graphics company that specializes in first responders. That company called me to sell it, and they were the typical business operates on two to three Ps out of the six Ps, and they had no people in place. It was husband, wife, and, and one employee. So I partnered with them and invested over a quarter of a million dollars to get their business up and running, and now they're doing great. It's a multi-million dollar company. I will attract to sell for $15 million. So, in it, so people read your book, and then they're thinking, oh, I want to sell my business. Michelle's going to, you know, her knowledge is going to help me sell it for a lot more. Um, do you have programs once someone reads the book where they can engage with you in some sort of a mentorship or, again, program to work in their business to improve it? 
Yeah, and that's called the Road to Exit Rich program that I just mentioned. The Road to Exit Rich program really works with the, we work with the owner to figure out, you know, what, what are their objectives? What are they trying to accomplish? We take them through what we call the GPS exit model. And we take them through what we call the seller sanity check. And we work with them on fixing their business to get it sellable the price tag they desire. And how long does it take when someone's considering selling? How how much time should they take or will they need to take? I know it depends where they are, but um, you know, that, what's prudent? That's always the that's always the, the billion dollar question, which is because there's just so many factors that come in play. You know, the, the companies that typically have the highest higher highest in EBITDA will typically sell quicker than small businesses. Larger companies will typically sell quicker because there's more buyers for those type of businesses. But it just depends on so many different factors. You know, is the business involved? Is the business owner involved? Is the business dependent upon the owner? You know, do they have all the people in place? Uh, what are their industry sectors? How easy can someone come in and take over that business? The app company, so the app company went from putting on the market to getting a signed LOI within two weeks of going to market. Two weeks. There's, you know, but there's uh, another company that's taken us two years. So, but the, the company has taken two years to have some issues that we've had to resolve. So it just really depends upon how healthy the business is. Is even over a million dollars, you know, is the business in a desirable location? <laughs> we have some businesses in very undesirable locations. And that makes it difficult because the owner doesn't want to live there. You know, and in some cases, owners feel like they have to live there to, to, to be in the business. Um, we've got one in a very undesirable location. It's been tough to move. Um, but again, any business is over a million dollars in EBITDA, healthy, the business doesn't depend upon the owner, those will typically go much quicker. SaaS but businesses sell quicker. E-commerce businesses sell faster. Um, yeah. I said this app company we have right now, it's been only working only two weeks. It sounds like about six months you could make a significant progress, though. Maybe that's, is that a good... Well, when we talk about it, so when we talk about the app company, we're talking about two weeks in market, but we're not talking about the three months before, three to four months before, we had to do the valuation, we had to wait on the seller to give us all the financials, we had to wait on the seller to put together the prospectus, you know, that was three to four months beforehand. So, you know, all together, he'll be on the market five months, you know, from start to finish. But a lot of owners, you know, it could take a year. The average uh, across the country is one to one and a half years or one to two years to sell a business. Wow. Do do you see that people um, treat their business differently once they start gathering the info to sell it? Like, do they go into a a different or a better mode? Does this help them regardless whether it sells or not? Well, we we really specialize in educating business owners what to do and what not to do. Because many business owners will check out. So they'll get all the financials together. They'll give us everything we need. And they kind of check out. And we tell them not to do that. You should never check out of your business. You need to be working on your business as if you're never selling it. You need to still make those decisions. You need to still grow the company. You need to still make sure it's moving forward and not check out. Okay. So, I mean, all right, this is good to do no matter whether you're going to sell it or not. But if you are going to sell it, it's worthwhile to go through the process, even if maybe you have the frustration of not being able to sell it at that time. Does that seem to open doors in people's minds where later on they do successfully sell? Or if they do it and it doesn't work, they get so disheartened, they just give up? Well, they do. They do. So let's, there's a couple ways to answer that question. 
Number one, every business owner, every entrepreneur should lead exit rich. And this is not just a commercial. <laughs> it's a fact. Even Steve Forbes says all entrepreneurs should lead exit rich because they need too much money on the, on, on the table when they go to sell their business. But the reason everyone should lead exit rich is because exit rich is not just about selling your company. Exit rich is about building an asset that is sustainable, scalable, and sellable. Most businesses are not sellable because they're not sustainable. Something wants to happen to the owner, the business dies when the owner dies, and it's not scalable. They can't scale it. So Exit Rich, the first half of Exit Rich is all about building that sustainable, scalable business. So when you are ready, or God forbid you die, you set your family up for success and your business will sell. As far as the second part of that question, yes, sellers have went through the process and they do get frustrated. But that's because they usually don't have the right advisor. The right advisor is always going to be making sure that they have backup buyers. Now, it's a, it's a fine line we walk because when we get LOIs, a lot of intents, there's always, you know, a clause in there, a non-shop a non clause. So we have to be very careful about that. But um, we're always working to make sure we have backup buyers. I mean, even for businesses we have under contract right now, we know on the app company, we got three more buyers in our back pocket. We know for the agriculture company, we have five more buyers in our back pocket. And so even though we're keeping those buyers saying, hey, you know, we'll let you know, we'll keep you posted, we'll keep you posted. It's really important to educate the seller that, yes, you do all this work. And just because a buyer drops out doesn't mean that's the end of the world. All the heavy lifting has been done. We'll bring another buyer to the table. And it won't be difficult next time because it's already been done. Yeah, and I could see if someone hasn't gone through a program speaking to a potential buyer, they probably would, I don't know, I guess neglect to include a lot of elements that would perk up, you know, the right buyer's ears. They wouldn't even know to include them in the, uh, you know, whatever you call the, the description of the business for sale. Right. We call it a SIM, Confidential Informational Memorandum, or a prospectus. That's correct. And that's why it's so important to... To really, you know, really work with an advisor that knows how to showcase the strengths. You know, now we also, we also, we don't showcase weaknesses, but we do point them out because we don't want the buyer to find skeletons in the closet that we didn't disclose up front. Yeah, I've seen that a few times, you know, like owners taking compensation, but calling in a loan that they have to pay back and, you know, hidden tax debt and all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. Our lawsuits that the seller forgot to tell us about. That happens. We have one seller that had 18 different lawsuits that he completely forgot to tell us about. What happens if you have um, a minority partner or minority owners? Do they just go along with the sale usually or can they block it or cause problems? Or how do you resolve that if you're not the head honcho that only is, is one owner? Well, you have to go look at the operating agreement and what's, what defines the buy-sell agreement. So there should always be an operating, you're talking about partners, right? You're talking about partners. Yeah, either equal or minority or, you know, et cetera, right? How do they? There should be an operating agreement with a buy-sell clause. And that buy-sell clause inside the operating, uh, part of the operating agreement dictates what happens. But most businesses, I don't want to say most, but quite a few of them don't have the buy-sell agreement. <laughs> Many of them don't even have an operating agreement. So that's when you got to really try to get everybody on board. There's been situations that we've walked away from. Uh, one situation was 12 family members owning a business. And they all had different percentages. And 
There was no managing member and I could just see the writing on the wall. So we walked away from that one. Um, but, you know, there's other ones where when it's a 50-50, like we got one right now where they hate each other. And, you know, he's like, I just want out. I just want out. Well, the other one's going to have to agree to that, too. So the best thing is to get them both on the same page and just get the buyer for the whole thing and let them move on. But I it's a market situation. And it just really depends upon what the bylaws say. Okay, got it. So uh, the best way for people to start engaging with you is to get exit rich. And uh, you mentioned offline. We'll mention it again now. I guess the audiobook version is on sale right now. Like, where, where can people yeah. find it and what's the current price? Yeah, so excellent. So I was on your show last year, I believe, Richard. I think it was last year. I think it was last year. Yeah, it was about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so we wanted your show to launch Exit Rich. And Exit Rich came out in June. And we're happy to say it's a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling book, which is great news. And everybody's been asking me, though, Michelle, I don't like to read. I don't have time to read. <laughs> you know, busy entrepreneurs don't always have time to read. They spend more time in their car. So we just came out with the audio version, and the audio version um, came out May 1st. We're selling it for $2.99, less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks, $2.99. And you can get that at Audible on Amazon. You can get that at Barnes & Noble. You can get it on Apple, wherever you buy your Audible books, your audio books, you know, go there. But only for this month, it's $2.99. And we will even give you additional bonuses. You can, you'll become a lifetime membership. Uh, you'll have a lifetime membership club with the Exit Rich Book Club, where you can go online, listen to more video content, and me doing deep dives and some of these different techniques and strategies we've been talking about, plus documents. We have documents to operate your business and documents to sell your business. So sample and free handbooks, sample process and policy procedure manuals, sample non-competes. Uh, to sell your business, we have sample perspectives, sample due diligence, checklist, letter of intent, purchase agreements, closing documents, all of those documents over $50,000. If you go buy Exit Rich for $299, send us a receipt, we will grant you access to the, to the Exit Rich Book Club as well. You can also con connect with me at Siler Tucker, SilerTucker.com. You can go to Siler Tucker Academy, SilerTuckerAcademy.com, uh, and that's where you can take the 6B quiz to see where your strongest piece, where your weakest piece, and make sure you listen to our podcast called Exit Rich and follow me on social media. Okay, well, very good. Michelle, thanks for coming back, and uh, you know, in the future, uh, I would love to have you again, so thanks for being here. Thanks, Richard. Thank you for having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.